Good morning. I told Tom when I got here, it looks like I'm about to do a one-man one nativity play here. Which reminds me of a couple of really funny stories that are really good, but I just have no time to tell you, because I need every minute for this. I'm dealing with temptation now. But I overcame it. There we are. So let's move on. All right. Although I do, <laughs> seeing an empty nativity stage, um, I remember a one-liner, a one-liner one by one of the uh, most cynical of BBC news presenters, um, who, in his show one year, said that uh, Christmas was going to be cancelled in Britain, owing to a shortage of wise men and virgins. <laughs> and. Uh, it was actually a very powerful statement, and it was great coming out of the mouth of a real pagan cynic, but it did make some people think. Um, in the interest of humility, confession is uh, a fruit of humility. How many of you were up pretty late last night doing your homework and preparation to make sure that you satisfied all the rigors of the demands of uh, this month? Just every, okay, all right, every head bowed and every eye closed. <laughs> If that's the way you want to do it. <laughs> I thought that when these two guys were speaking, they had the two main speakers and they bring along a pastor to do the altar call. You know, okay, put your hand up if you're going to commit to this. Now, we want to see you. Okay. <laughs> okay, how many of you were working late last night? Come on, right up there. Right up there. Okay, good. Uh, any of you past 12 o'clock? 1 o'clock? 1? Okay. 3? Back up at three. <laughs> I love a repentant Pharisee. That's good. <laughs> he got up at two. <laughs> he got up at three. <laughs> right. Well, I'm just putting my confession in there because uh, uh, I eventually finished my preparation at about half past three this morning. So if I, if I start speaking in a strange language, I'm going to trust that there is someone with a gift of interpretation present who will, uh, who will carry on. Um, our title today uh, in the, uh, the, uh, the series of the lectures is Pride and Humility. Um, I think you've been um, hanging out with C.S. Lewis enough now for me to call him Jack. Um, as Jack said, and you have read, if you've done your homework, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free. Agreed? Are we all in agreement here? It's good to start in unity. Where everyone in the world loathes when he sees it, someone else and of which hardly any people except Christians, if you think about that, ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. The vice I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit, and the virtue opposite in Christian morals is humility. Uh, what should I assume from your presence here this morning? Should I assume a humility that is expressed in your teachability and your hunger to learn the ways of God? Or should I assume a pride that has you comforted and comfortable that you're a member of this fine and select company of fellows. Really take your discipleship seriously. In fact, more so than many people you can think of. Uh, am I flattered that I've been asked to speak to you on this subject as one who is eminently qualified? <laughs> um, or uh, or am, I, am I, in fact, undone uh, by the awareness that the more I've prepared to speak to you, the more convicted I've become of my own needs for growth and grace? Uh, Lewis has much to say 
uh, about the theme of your studies this month. And I will begin by uh, giving a few examples of our mentor's treatment of it in order to set the scene for some later biblical analysis. But to go back to my opening questions, Lewis was particularly sensitive to the pride that attends Christians at the very moment they feel they are making spiritual progress. Some of his shrewdest comments on pride are to be found, not surprisingly, in the Screwtape Letters, particularly as they chart the reefs and rocks of spiritual pride. In a really mischievous letter, Screwtape is addressing how the enemy, of course God, is using the means of sexual love to draw the patient, Christian, into a circle of, quote, Christian life of a quality he never before imagined. And Screwtape goes on to comment on the way that the enemy is, quote, drawing the young barbarian up to levels he could never otherwise have reached. Sounds like the fellow's program to me. Wormwood's task is to, quote, make him feel that he's finding his own level, that these people are his sort, and that coming among them, he's come home. He must be made to feel, he'd better not put it into words, how different we are. And by we Christians, he must really but unknowingly mean my set. And by my set, he must mean not the people who in their charity and humility have accepted me, but the people with whom I associate by right. The idea, you're going to love Lewis, haven't you? The idea of belonging to an inner ring, of being in secret, is very sweet to him. Play on that nerve. And Lewis emphasizes this warning related to spiritual pride again through screw tape when he says, All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he's really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the qualifying reflection. By Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride, pride at his own humility, will appear. In an essay in Christian Reflections, he states this baldly. A man is never so proud as when striking an attitude of humility. Now, do you remember how he put it in mere Christianity? You should, because you all read it. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud, and a biggish step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you're not conceited, it means that you're very conceited indeed. And in another place, he writes that there can be no surer proof of a confirmed pride than a belief that one is sufficiently humble. And lest, in listening to Lewis, we shrug our shoulders and think this is no big deal, he asserts, whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good or better than others, we may be sure we are being acted on by the devil. The domain, you see, of our pride is seriously dangerous country. And Lewis reminds us that it is one of, quote, the deadly serious passions, close quote, lived out in hell itself. So antithetical is it to the DNA of heaven, to a godly life, or to the spirit of Christ, that it literally, if I can put it this way, makes hell imminent in our experience. And no wonder other lives get scalded and disfigured by our sin. Um, a wonderful aspect, by the way, of Lewis's humility 
when writing all this about pride, is his acknowledgement of those who God used to tutor his own soul on these matters. Wonderful thing about us in teaching the word and teaching subjects like this is none of us are original. That's a safety for you. I have friends, we have a working, uh, we have a sort of working line. If you're hearing something and it's less than a thousand years old, it's probably wrong. <laughs> Very good test for heresy. And he, that's why he urges us to read people like William Law. He especially urges people to read William Law's classic, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. And of this text he says, and just in terms of his own instruction and humility, about prides, superiorities, and fronts. There's no book better. By the way, on the frontispiece of Screwtape Letters, he includes two wonderful quotes that aptly describe his choice of method in the Screwtape text. The first is from Luther, who said, The best way to drive out the devil, if he will not yield to texts of Scripture, is to jeer and flout him, for he cannot bear scorn. And the second quotation that Lewis proffers is from Sir Thomas More. The devil, the proud spirit, cannot endure to be mocked. You see, pride always demands to be taken seriously. And indeed, that pride got mocked by Lewis. But backhandedly, of course, he's also mocking ours. I don't know if you've read Paradise Lost. I suggest you do sometime in your life. Or Lewis's literary critical response to that epic poem, namely a preface to Paradise Lost. But you will learn that Lewis is in Milton's camp. Lewis comments on the way that Milton could not avoid excluding, quote, all absurdity from Satan. Lewis writes, we know from his prose works that Milton believed everything detestable to be, in the long run, also ridiculous. And mere Christianity, there's, there's the phrase, and mere Christianity commits every Christian to believing that the devil, in the long run, is an ass. He goes on to talk about how Satan is presented by Milton as suffering from a, to use Milton's words, a sense of injured merit. This is one of the ways that satanic pride is delineated. Now hear me, let's make no mistake about it. The nature of satanic pride is presented as a massive concentrate of the most heinous and evil rebellion in Scripture. Uh, sit down sometime, if you haven't done it this month, with Isaiah's depiction in chapter 14 that says it all. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Or Ezekiel 28.1, in the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. In both prophecies, Accounts of terrible violence follow. Pride is a violent assault against God. But Lewis is also aware, like Milton, that there are aspects of this pride that cannot disguise their, their, their stupidity, their foppery, their sheer foolishness. Like you see, for example, in the pride of a dandy or the pathetic disposition of, of this injured pride that we know about in our own lives, this nursed hurt, this self-offending slight. How many of you know anything about that kind of thing recently? 
Lewis described, this is where you got to, this is where you love Lewis. This is, this is where Lewis is such a balanced entrance uh, into biblical truth. And, and Lewis, uh, in this literary critical work, by the way, there's masses of great devotional material in, in Lewis's literary criticism. Um, and he says, Lewis describes this injured merit, this hurt, uh, this sort of wounded pride, basically, as, quote, a well-known state of mind which we can all study in domestic animals, children, film stars, politicians, and minor poets. <laughs> I just love this guy. Uh, semicolon. And perhaps nearer home. And then comes a paragraph or so later of... of what I think is the simple but brilliant analysis. No one had in fact done anything to Satan. He was not hungry, nor overtasked, nor removed from his place, nor shunned, nor hated. He only thought himself impaired. In the midst of a world of light and love, of song and feast and dance, he could find nothing to think of more interesting than his own prestige. A creature revolting against a creator is revolting against the source of its own powers. It is like the scent of a flower trying to destroy the flower. So herein lies Lewis's understanding of biblical truth. It's why sin is presented in Scripture as folly. It is the folly of sinful pride, which Lewis in the same context, describes as basically sawing off the branch you're sitting on. Of course, this is simple logic. If such pride is the denial of the source of God's power, then all you are left with is an existence that is maintained by self-derived, self-motivated, self-directed, self-energized, self-affirmed resources. This is the demonic will to power and control of one's own life and one's own circumstances without God. In the problem of pain, Lewis sums it up like this. If we are to hold to the doctrine of the fall in any real sense, we must look for the great sin. Can a bell? Was that not the phrase he used for that chapter? In mere Christianity, here's the phrase here in the problem of pain. This sin has been described by St. Augustine as the result of pride, of the movement whereby a creature that is an essentially dependent being whose principle of existence lies not in itself but in another, when this creature tries to set up on its own or exist for itself. That reminds me of the sad but humorous description of the average Englishman who is a self-made man who worships his creator. The phrase, the great sin... Uh, which, as I mentioned, is the title of the chapter you read from your Christianity, uh, that focused on the spiritual dynamics of pride and that give you an insight into the kind of script that Lewis uh, would have lectured from if he were here this morning. The great sin he describes elsewhere in that chapter as, quote, a spiritual cancer. And if you have read A Grief Observed, his response to his wife's terminal cancer, then you'll understand with, with that description... He is conveying tremendous depth 
of his understanding of the dereliction and the destruction and devastation of pride. Could it be stated any more clearly than this quotation that you read? According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride always means enmity. It is enmity, and not only enmity between man and man, but between man and God. By the way, this quote illustrates another aspect of the power and abiding effectiveness, uh, I think, of Lewis's writing. He understood, uh, and we stress this again and again in the Fowler's program, uh, in, 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 in both years of the program, that fundamental to all our perceptions and practices as Christians is an understanding of the Holy One, a knowledge of God, what Tozer called a supernatural orientation of mind, a preoccupation with God himself. Lewis understood that pride is not a social nuisance. It's not a sort of embarrassment. It's a horrendous sin against God that God takes personally. Humility is not an advisable social behavior to help us to be nice people but a necessary qualification for and consequence of a personal relationship with the living God. In the weight of glory, he observes, quote, humility is the road to pleasure. Because he understood it is all about the pleasure of God, both experiencing his pleasure and giving him pleasure. Humility, then, is not our work. It's actually better understood in the context of our worship. Lewis's starting point, you see, is not the hubris of Satan, but the holiness of God. Quote, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. In the problem of pain, he writes, to ask that God's love should be content with us as we are, and I might add, in our pride, is to ask that God should cease to be God. I'm going to come back to that a little later. So this explains entirely and scripturally God's war against our pride. Why the need for humility? He describes the true end of humility, again in words out of Screwtape's mouth. You still with me? Hello? You still out there? Okay. Quote, Lewis, By this virtue, as by all the others, our enemy wants to turn the man's attention away from self to him, and to the man's neighbors. You must therefore conceal from the patient the true end of humility. Let him think of it not as self-forgetfulness, but as a certain kind of opinion, namely a low opinion of his own talents and character. I love the way Lewis expresses the unavoidable confrontation of God with our pride or our tin-pot view of ourselves. In God, he says, God. See, Lewis, Lewis had a huge doctrine of God. That's why you, you can't touch any of his writings without them being devotional. He knew God. And he says, if in God you come up against something immeasurably superior to yourself. So in the light of who God is, we should say, 
Are there any questions about your pride? One of the reasons why I think Lewis is so irresistible to seekers of truth like yourselves. Ouch. (laughs) Just testing. Did you feel flattered? I'm a seeker, not a sucker. Okay, I'm being bad, all right? I'm I'm just messing with you. One of the reasons, in fact, why Lewis is so irresistible to seekers of truth is simply that he's so truthful about himself and his own pilgrimage, his faults, his sins, his temptations, and his capacities for self-deception. And it is the mark of those who are most saintly to most recognize that their own heart is desperately wicked. And throughout the different genre of his writings, he not only observes how the pride of the human heart manifests itself, but he identifies with its power in his own life. In a letter to an American lady, he writes, If on consideration one can find no faults on one's own side, then cry for mercy. For this must be a most dangerous delusion. It's in a context where as a good pastor, he's exhorted her thus, May God's grace give you humility. Try not to think, much less speak of their sins. One's own are a much more profitable theme. And by the way, this is, I think, typical of the skill with which he could take heavy non-negotiable doctrine and landscape it in an intelligible pastoral and very colloquial style. He knows that there's a temptation. And this, this, by the way, I think is an important point. He knows there's a temptation to become morbid and and self-righteous even, and introspective, and maybe rhetorical and august when talking about these things, which is why you can often almost see the tongue in his cheek or the sparkle of humor in his eye as you read what he writes. As in another letter, pride is a perpetual nagging temptation. So keep on knocking it on the head. (laughs) You go, that's it? You know, I came for a lecture on how to deal with pride in my life. Keep on knocking it on the head. (laughs) Can you remember that? As long as one knows one is proud, he goes on to say, one is saved from the worst kind of pride. Now look, such humor in Lewis about such a serious subject as pride doesn't dilute the seriousness of the matter, but by committing us, he's, he's a canny, canny old Celt. By committing us to laughter, he implicates us. Because actually, our giggles, become a form of admission and confession that we do actually know what he's talking about and we do identify with that sin in our own lives. How much warning he can give us in one of these throwaway comments out the side of his mouth. We must not be pharisaical, even to Pharisees. (laughs) Sorry, I'm I'm giggling. A Pharisee by nature. In one of his letters to an American lady, he gets on this subject of false modesty, which, of course, is pride. Lewis doesn't wrap himself around an axle of angst in responding to this in other people. Somewhat naughtily, he writes, false modesty never works with me. If a man tells me he cannot do something, I believe him. (laughs) Which is, of course, terrible punishment (laughs) for the falsely modest person (laughs) as you walk away. The mention of modesty reminds me, uh, actually, of Winston, you know, Winston Churchill, who had that same canny eye for human foibles. They maybe not, certainly didn't have the same humility as Lewis. You'll remember Churchill's famous demeaning comment about one of his antagonists, that he was a modest man who had much to be modest about. <laughs> what a brilliant line. Brilliant line. Anyway, 
Earlier, I mentioned Lewis's love for William Law's writing on the subject, but I didn't, in fact, quote his whimsical and amusing final comment about it that tells us what to expect if we open up ourselves, as you are doing this month and even doing this morning, to such truths about the pridefulness of our hearts. He describes Law's writings as a place, quote, where you'll find all of us pinned like butterflies to cards. <laughs> How many of you know that feeling? That convicting rapier point of the Holy Spirit. And nearly three centuries later, we're saying the same thing about the pages of C.S. Lewis, a man who took delight in being what he described as almost wholly superfluous, who saw it as a reason for thanksgiving to God that it was possible, quote, to play great parts without pride, and who said of himself, I wish I'd got a bit further with humility myself. But there are even greater pages than those of Lewis. And that's what I want to turn our attention to, to the words of Scripture itself. Now, the subject of pride and humility is, in a sense, all about foundations. It's about beginnings. It was St. Augustine who said, as pride was the beginning of sin, so humility must be the beginning of the Christian discipline. This subject obviously is of crucial importance to any pursuit of discipleship, which is why it's fundamental to this fellow's program. But let me add this. I want to give a context to this, especially in what Scripture calls as the last days. As the world unravels, we should be reminded that the epistles that are the front door to the cosmic book of Revelation, most particularly those of Peter and Jude, are strong in their identification of two things, both the arrogance of the culture and the heart that does not know God, and consequently, that is why they are strong in their call to humility. They are dealing with rampant deception. You do know we live in the most heretical age of the church. Are you aware of that? We live in the age of the greatest, most proliferating, most accessible deception in the history of the church. They are dealing with deception and division and falsehood and slander that are the work of those who Jude notes are, listen to the description, bold and arrogant, despise authority, mouthing empty, boastful words. Peter writes, the end of all things is near. The devil prowls like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And it is in this context that he says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he might lift you up. We live and minister in a demonically arrogant antichrist culture. There we are, I've said it. It's on tape. It's going out on the internet. Deal with it. And it does persecute the faithful. We're not resisting to blood in the Western world yet. But Christian witness is opposed. And Scripture says that humility will be a key to endurance and perseverance in suffering. The church has been infected and polluted by the same spirit. And it is often manifested in the way we strategize and fraternize and advertise. In the public square, we just put our self-sufficient defiance right out there in our culture and name it for what it is. Gay pride. Black pride. White superiority. It is equally a tragedy that humility is not the first virtue 
with which the man in the street characterizes the church or her leaders. So we too are riddled by the cult of individualism that engenders independence and pride, and that is at such odds with the humility that is required by a community of faith that is premised on the example of Jesus, where one lays down one's life for others. Now this said, my point is that before we rush to characterize the spirit of the age, before we observe and oppose the manifestations of the pride of life, we should probably give time as Christians to the call to be humble. At the beginning of his very pure treatise on humility, Andrew Murray bewails the lack of the treatment of the subject as he looks back over the years of his ministry. And he sorrows, you know, as he recalls conference after conference where posturing and positioning and promoting restricted the flow of the Holy Spirit and the consequent revelation of Jesus. And Murray concludes, Humility is the only soil in which the grace is root, and the lack of humility is the sufficient explanation every defeat and failure. That would suggest, would it not, that our desire for victory and spiritual success should be tutored by humility and should be rigorous in the mortification of fleshly pride. Obviously, not just me, anybody is going to be hard-pressed in an hour lecture to do justice to either one of these two, pride and humility. And uh, I have no intention in the time remaining now to cover both. I have made a decision. And my decision now has been facilitated by the availability of the incredible resources for the subject that the Institute has asked you to read and to listen to. I've gone through pretty well all of them myself uh, this month. So um, unusually, I know what I'm talking about. Um, I've tried to be a good student, too, in that respect, simply to, to, because I, I'm the neediest man in the place. I always say that to God. I'm the neediest man in the place. Uh, I listen to the message from Pastor Bill Kynes, pastor of this church. Lord bless Bill, bless this church. Uh, and to... Uh, our C.S. Lewis president, uh, Tom Terrence, a, a, a lecture he gave on the subject in Oxford. So many of the articles, the essays that can be downloaded, include fine material from Mark Lindsay uh, and John Stott, the papers from John Stott that uh, Tom was quoting from. And this is help, helpful to me because I don't need now to slavishly repeat stuff that these wonderful teachers have covered with um, incredible biblical veracity and, and pastoral persuasion. So I've made my decision. I'm going to be pastorally proactive now and positive and I'm going to put the emphasis on humility, the characteristic of the Spirit's work. And I'm going to deal with pride in a way that argues the primacy of humility uh, in deference to the approach of Andrew Murray. Maybe my title should be Extreme Meekover. <laughs> I don't want to get proud about coming up with that. <laughs> but frankly, I thought it was good. <laughs> or, you know, being humble without the pie. Or how to make it versus how to make it. <laughs> you go away and play with it. It's a great game. I'm doing it on the train going to D.C. tomorrow. Take your Bibles. Read with me from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 20. I just want to read a few verses. Acts 20. This has been one of the most formative of passages for me in my life and in ministry. The Lord's used this time and again to inform my own desires and to challenge my own priorities in ministry. Verse 18, when talking of the elders uh, of Ephesus, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. 
although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. Wow. What a statement. How's that for an epitaph? And these, this is poignant, because these are Paul's last words to the Ephesian elders. He knows as he's speaking this, that he's on a journey that will lead to his martyrdom. The ultimate humbling of himself, like Jesus his master, even unto death. Uh, Year one, fellows, I want to talk to you briefly now about two holy, powerful characteristics. Non-negotiable. I'll try and keep it together, because they're hugely necessary in that day. Characteristics for a servant of God, which you are. These are two non-negotiable accompaniments to effective ministry. How was Paul called to live and minister and serve? How are you? I want to outline briefly, well, it won't be briefly. I'm pretty well sure I'm only going to get through one of them. Two answers. One, with great humility, he repeated it almost that phrase in verse 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me. He rephrased it in verse 24. Secondly, with tears, which he repeated in verse 31. I've warned you night and day with tears. So main section number one, if you want a heading, you can just put with great humility. Uh, Lord, as we um, meditate on this and study this, I... Uh, I realize the limitation of time, Lord. We choose not to be driven. Um, We thank you that we can stop in the middle of a sentence if we have to. And, Lord, maybe more often we should to make sure we hear you speak. So we ask you to speak now. We ask your word to to build us up and to be a scalpel uh, that excises what needs to be excised from our hearts. Maybe, Lord, it'll be something that has nothing to do with anything that's coming out of my mouth or this session, but because you are God and love us and pursue us for yourself, we just ask you now, we we allow you now to come from any angle you wish on us. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Outside Paul, um, many people regard St. Augustine as the greatest apologist of the church. And you almost certainly will have come across this quote this month, but here's what he had to say. For those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second thing, and humility is the third. When Martin Luther was asked to list the three greatest Christian virtues, he responded, first humility, second humility, third humility. How many of you think there seems to be a pattern here? (laughs) Allow me to summarize now just a lot of material in a, a pitifully brief way. And one of the things I I want to do in the session is almost just give you headlines, give you hangers on which you can hang your own study and some of your own uh, continuing pursuit uh, of the ways of God in the subject. In talking about humility now, I want to argue with you in the style of the old Puritans and look at three things under three headings, reasons, requirements, and responses. Reasons, requirements, and responses. So first of all, I want to suggest three reasons why this matter of humility is non-negotiable and and has to be taken uh, seriously. 
and pursued strongly. The first of those reasons is what I'm simply going to describe as the nature of the Godhead. It's all about the nature of the Godhead. All of our values and virtues only have veracity if they are rooted in the character of God. And this is certainly true of humility. I believe in in everything in teaching to go back to God. Start with the doctrine of God. Start with who God is. To quote James Houston, that wonderful professor of spiritual theology at Regent University, we need to expand the whole matrix of our Christian life and ground it all upon the mystery of the Holy Trinity. Now, Houston is not the only one who's been disturbed and concerned by the predilection of so many Christians who opt for or concentrate on only one person of the Trinity to the neglect of the others. And Houston goes on to add, we all need to see the divine Trinity as the archetypal reality. Our expression of community, communion, and spiritual life together must mirror. Now, in the relational DNA of the Trinity, we are first taught the way of humility. That's where we're first, we first learn it. In the preferring and honoring and submitting of one member to another within the Godhead. Do your own list sometime of examples of the humility of the Godhead. Let me get you started. What of the humility of divinity that would say it was not good for Adam to be alone, for starters? And seeks Adam's blessing in the gift of Eve at the risk of the loss of his own intimacy. Think about it. Ménage à trois are not known to work well in most situations. The humility, for example, of the God of the prophets and the psalmists, who is always presented as so exalted, yet who stoops to woo us. The supreme manifestation of the humility of, of the person of the Godhead, who is our, our Jesus Christ, emptying of himself, who humbled himself in heaven. This is very important, by the way. It says he humbled himself in heaven. Just a a fine point. It wasn't simply that he humbled himself by virtue of coming to poor lowly earth. He made a choice to humble himself in heaven. That blows my mind. There's something to think about in Advent. Taking the nature of a servant. And then he humbled himself on earth by being obedient to death. This is the Christ who, according to Zechariah, was humble and riding on the colt of an ass. The humility of the Godhead demonstrated in every aspect of Jesus' life. This Advent season reminds us of the humility of God passing through the womb. Have you noticed how both the incarnation and the atonement are presented in terms of humbling? It was the humble estate of Elizabeth that attracted God to Elizabeth. It was Mary who prophesied that God scattered the proud but lifted up the humble. The great disclosures of God came to the last and the least, to the social outcasts that were shepherds of the day in the outbacks. There is the humility of Jesus' life as he became of no reputation, Philippians 2.5, and self-confessing, self-describing said, I am gentle and humble in heart. Learn of me, Matthew 11.29. Is that not what a disciple is and what the word means, a learner? And what is the supreme lesson of our discipleship programs, according to Jesus? Humility. It is not simply the sense, by the way, of our own sin that motivates our humility, but this humble nature and character of Jesus, 
that provokes this deep, guttural longing to be like him. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's likeness, isn't it? Who made himself of no reputation. There's the likeness. My dad always used to tell us it was the best place to be, no reputation, because once you had no reputation, you didn't need to waste the rest of your life worrying about losing it. Oh, the efforts and the time that we waste in the writing and scribing of the resumes of ourself, how we're perceived, liked, appreciated, valued. As someone has said, the worst thing you can be told when you're worrying about what everyone thinks about you is that they're not thinking about you at all. Oh, the time we spend defending and protecting our view of self, this image of pride in our own personality or achievements, this wretched confidence in the flesh. To be like-minded with Christ is, is more foundational than having the right answers to all the apologetic questions or being orthodox even in all the main doctrines. Hell will be filled with orthodox people. To be like-minded is to be lowly-minded. Oh, what would disappear from our lives and friendships, our marriages and our churches, if this mind to be of no reputation was in us? What lack of love, because love does not boast. What harshness and criticism, what hardness and judgmentalism, what curtness and patronizing. What indifference to the needs and feelings and thoughts of others. What bitternesses and irreconciliations and estrangements. What divisions and factions. What arguments and disagreements. What unkindnesses and spites. If we're not convinced that humility is at the root of what the Godhead was about in redemption, in its, its, its uh, conviction to recover humility, then we've never really heard or walk with Jesus. Talking of the humility of the God, there's the humility of the submission that we see to the will of man in the cross. The humility of God not just passing through the womb, but passing through the tomb. And this humility of the cross actually now becomes our boast. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The humility of the ascension, the trust that the the ascension blows me away. Why we don't celebrate it more in the church, I have no idea. It would, it would probably bring, you know, we'd get revived if we did. I mean, think about it. Jesus just, you know, beam me up, Father, and away he goes. The humility that he trusted the power of the kingdom of God, the humility that he trusted the power of the Holy Spirit, the humility that he trusted his disciples. The humility of the Holy Spirit that glorifies Jesus, and despite the way some people talk about the Holy Spirit, does not draw attention to himself. I, I'm just, here are a few examples that place humility in the very nature of the persons of the Godhead. Would it be surprising then that those who are the children of God would bear the same DNA and manifest the same nature and disposition? Is it surprising that humility becomes the salient mark of those who are closest to him, or that God is so attracted to those who bear the humility of the son he loves. Did not Paul, for example, say he was the least, not fit to be an apostle? In an age where everyone's racing to self-appoint themselves as apostles, and, and you can hardly keep up with the latest apostolic network. I'm not worthy to be an apostle. Do we still not know anything we don't. Do you know anything about what happened with that man in Christ? 
who was taken up into the third heaven? There's hundreds of people out there talking about apparently what they did in the third heaven. That's a giveaway. We don't know who that man, well, we assume the man in Christ is Paul. We don't know what happened. And it is in this context in 2 Corinthians 12 that Paul says he will not talk about certain things so that, quote, no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Let me ask you, how much testimony draws more attention to the testifier than the one being testified about? It is in this context that Paul describes his thorn of the flesh to keep me from becoming conceited. The only thing left for him then to boast about, he said, was his weaknesses. Oh, the humility in the nature of the Godhead that is desired as the nature of those who are his. So I'm arguing with you. Reasons. Reason number one that we have to engage humility is it's the very nature of God. Reason number two, it is the non-negotiable need of humanity. It is the need of humanity. We were created for loving dependence. As we read the Genesis text, we seem to move so quickly from the breath of life and the tree of life to the pride of life. Therefore, foundational to all creational peace is the recovery of humility and submission to God. The story that follows in the Bible could be described as the search for lost humility. You could argue that the Pentateuch is one long lesson in humility. And what happens when pride chooses to resist the humbling purposes of God? It exegetes our need for humility through the needs of Israel, the professing people of God. I could have spent hours this morning just teaching from that narrative alone. Within it, you have the incredible confrontation, for example, between Pharaoh, of whom God asked, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? In Exodus 10. And Moses, of whom it was written, he was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. The contrast here is presented in another telling way. Pharaoh the proud says to God via Moses, get out of my sight. God says of Moses the humble, with him I speak face to face. What a precise difference between the separation that pride brings in relationship with God and the intimacy that humility brings. This is a seriously important piece of text because it shows us what later scripture affirms and illustrates that the refusal to be humbled or to walk in humility results in a hardening of heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. If you're not humbling your heart, you are hardening it. That's the point of the contrast between these two protagonists. Let me just give you a word of encouragement, because this could be very discouraging. Moses, aren't you relieved, did not get humble in the day. As Lewis himself said, quote, a week is not enough. A month of C.S. Lewis fellow studies, how many of you know, is not enough. In fact, that can put you back quite a while. <laughs> As Fenelon explained, humility is not a grace that can be acquired in a few months. It is the work of a lifetime. Don't forget that there were 40 years in Moses' life between the time that in Stephen's words in Acts 7, 23, he thought that his own people would recognize that God was using him. I think that's often missed in that Stephen's sermon. I mean, it's, it's almost funny, you know. Moses is strutting his stuff in Egypt, and he's really ticked off. He's miffed off. I mean, he's just, he's, he's just taken out this, this uh, a, a Egyptian taskmaster, and, and he really believed his people would recognize that God was mightily using him. 
How many think that's uh, pride right there? How many? You with me? Forty years till Numbers 12.3, where he is proclaimed as the most humble man that God knows. You see, this, this does not only happen by the way on a personal level, but on a corporate level and on a national level, as the historical texts of Scripture teach us. 587 BC, the fall of Jerusalem, was the 9-11 of its day. But the scriptural preface to it that describes why it happened is instructive. Zedekiah did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not humble himself. He hardened his heart. By the way, his captain Nebuchadnezzar suffered the same fate because he didn't learn God's lesson even in his victory over Zedekiah. So we get to Daniel 5 and it says, when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was stripped of his glory. The unfolding history of the children of Israel, what I'm arguing, is teaching us in this biblical narrative of the non-negotiable need of humanity for the recovery of what was lost. Humility. Are we surprised of what we learn. I mean, again, I can't go into it, but let me give you an example little, you know, that we learn on the way. We learn, for example, in their slavery in Egypt that to be humiliated and in bondage does not necessarily bring humility. How many of you know that? Are we surprised then at God's description of what the 40 years in the wilderness were all about? It reveals God's discipleship curriculum for the soul of those he loves and calls according to his purpose. What was his purpose there? Deuteronomy 8. To humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. Otherwise, when all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord. That is why there is such an emphasis in Scripture on remembrance. Because it provokes the recall of the mighty ways of God, the mighty works of God, the mighty words of God that bring us back to a posture of thankful humility. The fundamental purposes of God through our experiences and circumstances, whether precarious or prosperous, is to test what is in our heart and teach us what is in God's heart. Quote, so that in the end it may go well with you. This testing work of God, these purposes of God through trials are not punitive, but protective, counteracting the pride of our ease and sufficiency, our comforts and our smarts, our achievements and our ambitions that can lead us so imperceptibly to forgetfulness and therefore to faithlessness. This lesson and the sequence is repeated in Scripture now through the prophets. One example, Hosea 13.6. Fed, they were satisfied, they were proud, they forgot. It's all truncated down. The whole history into one verse. I'm just trying to argue that wherever you go in Scripture, it's reasoning with us on this matter of humility because of the non-negotiable creational need of humanity, fallen humanity. I mean, fundamental, for example, to the atoning and redeeming work of Jesus is this recovery of humility. Murray just puts it very simply. Jesus came to bring humility back to earth. This, let me just helicopter over this for a few minutes because it's Jesus. The humility is our fundamental need. This is emphatically reinforced by Jesus' teaching. You do the work. One, in the time given to the direct opposition and denunciation of the pride to the Pharisees, right? Two, 
in his direct exhortations to humility. Three, in something that uh, Andrew Murray touches on, so you can go back and read it, in the pristine example of Jesus' own humble responses to God. You know, go back and, and look at all the knots of Jesus' communications. Not my will. I seek not my own. I'm come not to do my own will. My teaching is not mine. I've not come of myself. I seek not my own glory. I speak not from myself. And also the nothings. The Son of Man can do nothing of himself. Jesus repeats that three times. Four, in the concentrate of the Sermon on the Mount, which, as you know, is a counter-cultural explosion if ever there was one. Lewis, by the way, he takes on a theologian of his day who dared to minimize the power and the cogency of this passage. You know, went straight like, you know, blessed be the home, blessed be the, you know, run along and be blessed. You know, you sort of trip through the Sermon on the Mount like it's, all you do, it's something you calligraphy and cover with flowers for something on your wall and hang it in the toilet. Lewis got absolutely ticked off because this, this, uh, this theologian dared to talk about the Sermon on the Mount as a tranquil pleasure. And Lewis replied, and interesting, Lewis replied in a context where he was dealing with pride. I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of the man who can read the Sermon on the Mount with tranquil pleasure. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? <laughs> he was referring to this, as I said, in a context where he was dealing with meekness. From the Sermon on the Mount alone, we can learn that lack of this humility, if you had nowhere else to go in Scripture, in terms of the need of humanity, go there, argue from there. The lack of this humility is the source of sin and evil, division, just going through the Sermon on the Mount, irreconciliation, hatred, prejudice, injustice, indifference, bitterness, anger, and on and on. If there was no other teaching of Jesus, this would be sufficient. And the logic of the sequence speaks for for itself. Follow it. What's the first beatitude? You know, that's an, it's an interesting exercise. I sometimes do that to people. Write a list of eight things you really want for yourself. Well, you got it in the Beatitudes. You know, just cut through the mustard and go straight to what Jesus said was, was of prime importance. Okay, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, now, look, this is important. This isn't about bad self-image or low self-esteem or introversion. This is about an admission of bondage. This is about a consciousness of the depth and debt of sin in our lives that can only lead to a cry for mercy. Here is the humility that acknowledges the true condition of the heart. Here is the need for humanity. Humility is always identified with repentance and contrition, with the awareness of sin. But as I've already said, it is not sin that keeps us humble, but the grace of God in forgiving our sin and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Sin on its own doesn't necessarily lead to humility. It can, in fact, imprison us in humiliation. Unless, like the the publican, we get to the point and cry out. Or unless, like the prodigal son, we get to the point where we have to return home to the Father. Without that, we remain the Pharisee and we remain the elder brother. Full of ourselves, so rich in self-estimation and sufficiency. There has to be humility that confesses our true state of poverty. This is the humility that sings, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly, wash me, Saviour, wash me, or I die. Our churches are full of programs that well-meaningly seek to help people stand on their own feet. And some of them, and don't misunderstand me here, 
are dressed up as recovery classes and some of them are dressed up as training classes in various things. But if we haven't first fallen at his feet, we'll never stand on our own. Blessed are those who mourn. This isn't about being sad or depressed. You see, it wasn't Paul. Hello? It was not Paul who originally put together humility and tears. Blessed are those who mourn. Tears are the great fruit of the humbling work of the Holy Spirit. What provokes these tears? I'm not going to get into it. That's section two. We'll do that another year. There may be tears when the Lord convicts, but there are also the tears that grace causes us to weep as our hard hearts are melted and turned over again by the blade, oh, the blade of his covenant love for us. If we are conscious of our sin, we should grieve over it. We should grieve when the Holy Spirit is grieved or quenched. If you've never done a biblical study on what grieves the Holy Spirit, I haven't got time to get into that. Do it. Scripture answers that question. The third beatitude, blessed, now we come to, blessed are the meek. But normally people come, ah, now we've got to humility. No, 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 you've been in humility from the start. When the response of humility to God is established, then we hear the blessing of the meek. Humility is not number three on this list. It was number one, number two, and number three. So Augustine and Luther were not original either. Humility toward others, toward everything and anything else is first determined by a true estimate of ourselves before God. Our humble response to God must first be established before there can be humility toward others. Why? Because in the light of God's requirements of us, we've discovered a true estimation of ourselves. Meekness is the fruit of our brokenness. And that's precisely why it appears to some as weakness. But it only feels weak. Because we're no longer in control. We've, we've been able to be proud because we're supported by the girders and beams of our own self-worth and acumen and self-confidence. Of course the meek get bypassed and overlooked and ridden over and ignored. Of course they get nowhere on the world's schedules and maps and promotional charts and hierarchies. That's precisely why they're going to inherit the earth. <laughs> Yay for God! I would suggest that 70 years of meek obscurity is a fair exchange for what's to come. I love Toza's comment. It is altogether unlikely that we know who our greatest men are. For the holy man is also a humble man. And the humble man will not advertise himself, nor allow others to do it for him. In terms of scripture arguing this need of humility for humanity, let me mention another area of text. I want to mention another key refrain of Jesus' ministry that emphasizes our need for humility. On no less than three strategic occasions in the Gospels, Jesus says these words repeated. Whoever exalts himself shall be abased, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. It was, it was clearly a very significant issue in the mind of Jesus and his teaching. Um, again, this lecture, I, we could have just focused on these three. And I'm mentioning them so you can meditate and study them on your own. They're all addressed, all of them are addressed to the pride of the Pharisees. Same what? They're addressed to us. 
by the way, don't forget that pride crucifies Christ. First incident was Luke 18, 14, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. This is about what it is to be truly justified. Therefore, humility is fundamental to our understanding and demonstration of our salvation. Incident number two, Matthew 23, 12. Here it is spoken to the Pharisees, discussing their prideful manners and methods and ministries. Therefore, humility is fundamental to our understanding of and exercise of our service. Passage number three, Luke 14, 11. This was the dinner at a Pharisee's house where he healed a man. He teaches that the difference between honor and humiliation is humility. His comments are set at a dinner party. Therefore, humility is fundamental to our understanding and experience and the conduct of our social lives. Another area of text you should go to, how many, you can hang with Jesus all day, right? No one taught like him. Let me just mention one more helpful area of textual study that demonstrates humility as the very nature of the Godhead and the need of humanity. It's the account of the Last Supper and the final upper room discourse. I tell you, this turns our present practices of so much spiritual leadership on its thick head. So much do we need humility. So huge is our deficit and loss and lack without it that Jesus here commands it to ensure that we do not miss the blessings. You also ought to wash one another's feet, John 13, 14. The fact is that any maturity in spirituality fits us less for leadership on most people's terms than for lowliness on God's terms. It makes us more humbly the servant of all. If authority, spiritual authority, is not premised on humility, then we will, guaranteed, lord it over others. And this is why many church leaderships look and act no differently to secular corporations. Spiritual knowledge and experience cannot be turned into our rights or our entitlements to be heard or to minister or to be taken seriously or even to be respected, quite frankly. That way is the way of pride. You you know what's mind-blowing? Have you ever thought about this? What happened at the Last Supper? The text says a dispute rose among them. Think about that. And what what was it about? Look, this is Jesus' last hours before the worst suffering ever endured. His own needs are so unfathomable. He's already made them secondary to his disciples' needs by washing their feet. And they have nothing better to do in that context than argue. About what? About who would be the greatest among them. Give me a break! This is chilling. If ever there was a cameo so close to the cross of what sent Jesus there, of the human pride that marked the essence of man's rebellion and sin against God, this has to be it. And it is among his own. Do we have such disputes? Do you know what is salutary about this? Even their attachment to Jesus himself did not in itself excise that pride from their hearts or engender the appropriate humility any more than simply our association with a church or a fellows program will either. How changed these men were by the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit post-Pentecost. Andrew Murray argued that the greatest test of our holiness was our humility. There's many a holiness movement, by the way, that is not noted for its humility 
but its censorious legalisms and latent Pharisaisms. But as Lewis warned us, we should not be tempted, as I've already quoted, to be Pharisaical, even to Pharisees. How terrifying, guys, are our capacities to take the supernatural provision of God and pridefully fabricate them into our own spiritual fashion statements. Our ministries, our idols that bolster our own affectionate view of ourselves. What is the virtue in a faith movement that puts others down through sarcasm? Or a reform movement that thanks God it's not like those who don't understand the doctrines of grace the way we do. Such an ungracious attitude nullifies their own self-assured perceptions about their understanding of assurance. What redemption is there in a renewal movement that leaves the impression that no one else can be in the center of God's restored universe if they're not with them? As one saint put it, you can never have more of true faith than you have of true humility. Jesus' humility here is our example for it's in the context of the most vexing circumstances imaginable. He is the Messiah, but he's been named a blasphemer and a heretic. And equally, we accept, we, here, this morning, we can accept every vexing circumstance and person as a means of God's grace in our life to humble us that we might receive more grace. And that's why we can glory in what humbles us, be it trials or distresses, weaknesses or disappointments, frustrations or failures, offenses or betrayals. And speaking of offenses, it is always ignorant pride that gives offense and injured pride that takes offense. It is only humility that helps us live offense-free. Anyone here with any offenses this morning? The question to ask is less about what has been inflicted upon you than to ask what aspect of my pride was it that was offended. Let every conflict first reveal our own heart. I must move on. Obviously, I'm not going to finish reflection time. We've only covered the second sub-point, the need of humanity, of the first point, reasons, of the first main section with great humility. Do you have your coordinates now? Frankly, who cares? Has anyone received a word of truth thus far? Has the Holy Spirit quickened something to your heart or required something of your will or persuaded you of a necessary response of obedience? So we could stop now at point one dot one. Let me mention the third part of reasons. The first was the nature of the Godhead. The second was the need of humanity. And that leads us to the third reason. This is, it's like the screws tighten, you see. Nature of the Godhead. Mm-hmm. Need of humanity. Mm-hmm. Point number three, it is the necessary evidence of spiritual life. If I ask you to list necessary evidences of spiritual life, I wonder what you'd put down. I want to suggest that humility is right up there. And that's already been established by equating the mind of Christ with a life of no reputation. Humility is not essentially our doing, but God's work in us. If it is not a fruit of our submission to God, of our seeking of his will for us, even our sanctification or our desiring of him, if it is not the fruit of his separating of us apart, if it's not his consecrating of us for its purposes, then you know what? It'll be turned by us into just another achievable behavior that we can take pride in 
and that can be our boast. The lack of humility in us does not lead us to the readjustment of our behavior, but to the repentance of our sin. Once again, if humility is not our response to God, it will not be to others. We end up being nice but not holy, helpful but not humble, pleasing others but not pleasing God. I really don't have any time, but let me just throw out three, three examples in this section. Ephesians 4.2. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble. Humility is the spiritual evidence of your calling. Colossians 3.12. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with humility. Humility is the spiritual evidence of the state of your present relational intimacy with the Lord. Galatians 5.23, through the Spirit is meekness. Keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. Humility is the evidence of the Spirit's sanctifying work in us and an evidence of the maturity of our Christ-like character. So the question is, wherein is humility evidenced in our life? Okay. Well, I've got five minutes, Tom. Is that the end of question time, five minutes? I'm burning up question time, and I did it with his permission then I, I've got to race out of here. I've, I've got to jump on a, a plane to UK for some, in fact, very, very interesting meetings this week uh, of a gathering of uh, just, I suppose you could call it a gathering of, of, of friends uh, to pray and to discourse in the presence of Jesus about how in our respective lives and ministries we relate to a deal with half the stuff that's happening out there and to take counsel. There's a lot of stuff flying in the wind out there. We need to learn and know how to, as Scripture exhorts us, both to warn lovingly and graciously and instruct strongly in these days in the Word of the Lord. That's why it's so brilliant. You, you can relate to the passions of something like the C.S. Lewis Institute. Okay, I mentioned reasons. I'm just going to throw out the headings in these last five minutes. You fill in the blanks. My, my second point was going to be requirements. So if I've given you three reasons, nature of the Godhead, it's the need of all humanity, it's the necessary evidence of a spiritual life, a whole second session, section you need to fill in is requirements. If the first point in the section reasons was establishing humility as to do primarily with the character of the Godhead and the needful character of man and the necessary characteristic of all spiritual life, then the second point is simply to do with command. God makes this matter of humility accessible, achievable, and accessible. And I'm so confident that God makes clear to us what is of most importance to him by simply commanding it. How many of you know that's a relief? Instead of me trying to work out what his best suggestion is. We're given a choice. Humble yourselves or be humbled later. And given the enormity of the consequences of missing God's reward, Scripture, after all the reasons for us to consider humility, presents humility as a divine requirement. Again, no time. But you do the scriptural analysis. You know, starting with clothe yourselves with humility. Ooh! Could you not just, you know, take me to a store, a spiritual store, and let me make my choices of what I choose to clothe myself with? One old saint said, many would be scantily clad if clothed in their own humility. <laughs> Ephesians 4.2, be completely humble. Completely? Did you have to say that? C, in humility, uh, Philippians 2.3, in humility consider others better than yourself. Just generally others? Can I not pick and choose? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vacancy. Nothing? Who's writing this thing? Be compassionate and humble. To this you were called. 
Period. Titus 3, 2, show true humility to all men. All? Not those I agree with and like and love and respect and have a mutual admiration society with? Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of a low position. Follow after meekness, man of God. Correct in meekness. How much correction would disappear? If that was the qualification, we understood. Humbly accept the implanted word. Man, there's a sermon. Have you ever caught your own heart? Responding to the teaching of the word or to teachers? People who go into meetings to sit in criticism over the word and over the preacher? We choose who we receive from? Where did that come from? I'm not going to get to it, but I want to read you something right now. This is Jonathan Edwards. One of the things that keeps some of us out of engagement with God and maturity with God is over our dead body, will we go anywhere or experience that or do that? And in our pride... We won't, this is 18th century, and in our pride we won't even let God tamper with the boundaries of our life. Here I am and here I'll stay. I've always done it this way and this is how I'll do it. But thanks for your inquiry, God. I would suggest that all the scriptures you're going to find of requirements removes humility from the realm of optional behavior to that of necessary holy obligation. Humility is a matter of obedience. It is a requirement. Summarizing these verses, we could argue that this requirement is the command of Scripture, the character of Christ, and the calling of believers. Are you still with me? I'm trying to give you a biblical argumentation here. The third point, the third area you need to fill in here is responses. And again, you're all you know, lovers of God and lovers of the Word, so the work I've done for here, you can do yourself. It'll be better for you. In a nutshell, God responds to pride and God responds to humility. He finds pride appalling and he finds humility utterly appealing. He cannot resist it. Utterly attractive. Scripture puts it succinctly. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, repeating that scripture, and gives grace to the humble. Does that get your attention? I want to suggest to us that if God opposes us, we are going to lose? And that if God gives to us, we are going to gain? So get yourself some, a notebook and start listing scripturally God's responses to pride. One of our problems is we've already decided on our terms what is arrogant and haughty or can and should be taken to exception to. The trouble is much of it is rooted more in our prejudices and preferences than in God's precepts. And on top of that, like John Newton, we're naturally blind and oblivious to the the offensiveness of pride in us. He said, the pride of others offends me and makes me studious to hide my own. If you really want to know if you're clothed with humility, ask your friends. Ask your leaders. Ask those you lead. Ask your spouse. Ask your kids. Ask unbelievers you know and work with. Ask Jesus. The fact is all the lectures and articles and discussions on pride don't do a darn thing if there isn't a spiritual revelation by the conviction of the Holy Spirit of our own pride. I love the quotations of the Puritans. There's no spirit in man more opposed to the Spirit of God than the Spirit of pride. I guess that's why God opposes it. 
Thomas Manton wrote, other sins are against God's law, but pride is against God's sovereignty. I guess that's why there is a war between them. Scripture is a record of God's responses to pride, his attitude to it, and his actions against it. From the expulsion of the worship leader of heaven from the throne room, from the expulsion of our first parents from Eden, pride alone is the explanation for the loss, the exclusion, the separation, and the exile. But it's not kosher today, even in many of our evangelical pulpits, to talk about God's responses to pride. God forbid we upset the fragile self-esteem of the electorate. But a communication and an engagement that necessitates a revelation of his divine affections that are contrary to our feel-good, anything-goes, easy believism. And the shocking thing is when you go through the scriptures of God's opposing to pride, it's language you blush to use. He hates it. It's detestable. He's going to break it down. He'll bring it down. He'll bring it low. Because the Lord alone will be exalted. He will ruin He'll be against, he'll put an end to, he abhors, he tears down, he pays back in full. He will not endure a proud look. And the New Testament, if you say, well, that's all Old Testament stuff. Hello, the New Testament opened with one of the most undervalued, untaught, unexamined prophecies of all prophecies in Scripture that we call the Magnificat. He will scatter the proud. It's a terrible thing to be opposed by God. And the strength of the language alone should tell us it's to be reckoned with. Again, dear hearts, listen to me. This is not rightly discerned if it's only understood as punitive. God seeks to destroy that which destroys us. Or as one saint put it, God is not out to hurt our pride, but kill it. And by the way, Scripture makes clear that we can oppose God indirectly with our pride. There's a chilling moment when Sennacherib is just lifted up and it's against Hezekiah. But God comes to him and says, Against whom have you lifted up your eyes in pride? In, implied, well, Hezekiah. And God says, Against the Holy One of Israel. That's interesting. So when we're tempted to sort of, you know, play fast in the world, it's, it's only, it, you know, it, it's against them. God says, No, 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 no. It is against them, but it's fundamentally against me. Bear my name. Do your own study of how he opposes pride. I'll throw out three ways. He refuses to stop. Romans, God's response to persistent arrogance and ingratitude and sin is to hand people over. To cease to strive with them. Spurgeon said, if we think we can do anything of ourselves, all we shall get from God is the opportunity to try. Number two, he'll refuse to speak. In Leviticus 26, 19, God says the heavens will become as iron. There'll be no response from him as Jesus' response to the arrogance of Herod was silence. So he refuses to stop certain things. He refuses to speak. Thirdly, he refuses to support. The story of King Uzziah. Look it up. 2 Chronicles 26. When someone insists on going it their own way in the pride of their own might. I did it my way is the sad song of a proud fool. I'm sorry for Frank that the first three letters of his name spell sin. Atra. To quote Spurgeon again, God will not go forth with that man who chooses to march in his own strength. Or as an anonymous saint put it, if we insist on our glory, God will withdraw 
his. This kind of opposition is a motivation to humility. To reveal our pride, whether it's personal, pride of gender, of race, of nation, of experience, or whatever. Who of us can inventory the camouflage of pride or the endless ways it insinuates itself into our lives? Have you ever written a list of it? I did that again in preparation for this morning. It's pretty shocking, and I haven't even scratched the surface. The pride that refuses to respond to share or return affection that withdraws, that judges, the pride disguised as hurt, as victim, as self-pity, the pride that determines what we will or will not do, will or will not receive from who we choose, the pride of maturity and insight and experience, the pride that presents itself as criticism and judgment, as rudeness and abruptness, as control or unforgiveness. It's all pride. The pride that keeps an account of what we're owed, of others' obligations to us. The pride of personal dominance and personality. The pride of touchiness and offense. The inverted pride of rejection. The pride of unteachability and insensitivity. Of unrepentance. Of selective acceptance. The pride that cannot affirm or encourage another. The pride of self-satisfaction and independence. Of failure to surrender. The pride of our wretched unconfession. The whole garbage can of our Pharisaism. Religious but not right. Not as others. For men to see and approve. Loving the place of honor. Self-importance. Self-contentment. Blah, blah, blah. And of course, we don't even deal with the jungle of our small vanities of appearance and ambition and achievement and acceptability and self Of course, and the excellent planning of our life. God's response to pride is an evaluation that brings a right judgment that should move us to repentance or a right motivation that should lead us to obedience and right action. As Campbell Morgan, the great British preacher, said, all God's thrones are reached by going downstairs. You do your own study of God's response to humility. It'll, it'll just, it'll bless you. Write out all the verses that says what God does for the humble. He esteems them. He hears their cry. He does not forget them. And on and on. And if you find yourself at a place where the enemy would, would entrap you, that, that there, there, is, there is a limitation to your experience of the grace of God or for you to be delivered from that which binds you, I'll give you another study, biblical study. Um, take the three wickedest men talked about in the Bible. Take Ahab, take Manasseh, take Rehoboam. God says things about them, he says about no one else in Scripture. They were the wickedest on the face of the earth. They abandoned God and all the rest of it. And in every one of them, the judgment of God came. And in every case, it says, they humbled themselves in sackcloth. In fact, it's a very poignant with Ahab. And because God, God goes and it says, God said to Elijah, hey, Elijah, Elijah. It's, it's like God said, did you notice that? He actually asked him, did you notice that? Did you see what I saw? Just saw? I just saw Ahab in sackcloth humbling himself before me. And you can catch this heart of God. This, you know, don't tell me that God's response to the hardness of the heart of pride is this detached hardness. Give me a break. He's looking, you know, God has more ways to restore than we have to ruin. He's looking for that fissure, that fracture, where in a second, with the pressure of his love, he can pump us full in milliseconds, where the enemy has wasted over years and years. And I'm talking to some of you out here, and you are caught up in generations of familial pride. Maybe you represent the point of break 
in your generations when this will not have dominion over us. Whether it's a repetition of sin, prideful sin or prideful or prideful attitude. And God said, I can't believe it. And God's response to that is, he comes to Ahab and he says, this disaster will not happen in your lifetime. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Anyway, I've given you three sections. The reasons, the requirements, the responses. But I've also given you the second point you've got to do, because I haven't even got to with tears. But maybe I'll give you a connection. I've got to pray and close here. There's a scripture in Isaiah. Again, it's very poignant. It's like the Ahab scripture I just told you about, 1317. And, and God is, is just grappling with his people. And he says to them these words. He says, I will weep in secret because of your pride. This is this picture of God whose heart is so broken by what opposes him. This isn't the reaction of, okay, I'll take you out. It's this God who withdraws, has to get, it's almost a picture of God who has to get himself together. Or, or, or really, the, the brokenness of his heart. It's like, doesn't want to be seen in public. Just find a place where you can just let it out and express the affections of the heart. You see, humility and tears is not original to Paul. And it even predates the ministry of Jesus, as expressed in the Sermon on the Mount. We're presented with a God, the humility of the Godhead that weeps over the pride of men. And I, I believe that if we are living in the days we seem to be living in, that there is a call upon us, not simply to have great notes on our C.S. Lewis lectures, but take a mind of how does all this relate to the context in which we are living our lives. We are desperate for a reviving move of the Spirit of God. I tell you, desperate. The election is over, but put not your trust in princes. Scripture says, there is a need for recovery within the church of humility and tears, of meekness and of mourning. And I'm not talking about fleshly tears or crocodile tears. I'm talking about what Jesus spoke about when we start to engage the realities. And you see, where that humility will go and take you dear hearts, is to pray if my people... I'll tell you, the reason there is, there is prayerlessness is not because people don't know about prayer. It's because they're proud. If you want an indicator of your pride, take it off how, off how you pray and what you pray for. Because I'm assuming that if we don't pray, we've got it worked out. We don't need any help. That seems to me a posture of my arrogance. I can cover this. I can handle this. I did it yesterday. I've been doing it like this for years. And it's interesting to me. And I know someone out there is saying, yeah, but you know, it's, you know, it's not all about tears. You're right. But it's interesting in Genesis 18 that the same message that brought news that Isaac, who means son of laughter, 
was the same message that brought the message of judgment of Sodom. It's never an either or. Of course there's laughter and joy. But I'm just saying that there, there comes a place and there comes a time in personal life and in national life and community life for our engagement with the humble heart of God requires some things of us. And if you do the study on tears, you'll learn in Scripture that there is a grief within the Godhead. There is a grief, in fact, which is appropriate for the people of God as their response to things. And, but by the way, there is a grief that is commanded of God from us at the place of humility. And none of us can, you know, this doesn't come by the laying on of hands or anything else, and nobody's asking, nobody's asking for a, a sort of maudlin response uh, to, the, to, to, the, to the word of the Lord. But I am telling you that the softness of heart will be the consequence of the humbling work of the Spirit, as hardness of heart is the response of our pride. And that's why I used the image earlier. You know, we just say, oh Lord, we, we need the blade of your word. We just, we just need you to come and keep turning over the sod of this man's heart. By my nature, I am a legalist. By my nature, I am a Pharisee. Thank God he opposes that nature. <laughs> and thank God there is a spirit that is a humble spirit that we can invoke and call upon, that will reveal Jesus, the humble Jesus, who says, learn of me, and in his humility says, this way, to the Father. And we're caught up in this amazing, amazing relationship of humility with the Godhead. And we learn, not that we don't sin or are prideful, but we learn in that to keep short accounts with God. And with everybody else. What did James say? How many of you know James was a very practical man? Do you agree that James was not an emotional flake? <laughs> Hugely pragmatic. But it was James who said, change your laughter into mourning. And told us not to be conceited. Lord, you know our lives. We're just relieved that you know us through and through. We're relieved that you can read the hidden script of our hearts where we can't even be articulated, articulate about it ourselves. We're just relieved you know us. We thank you for those places you bring us to in our life where we would hide our pride and our offensiveness by our nature. But we experience that relief of being discovered of being found out. And I pray for each of us in our life, Lord, that where there is that discovery by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that, that, that brings down the citadels of our incipient and latent arrogance towards you and others, that we will recover by your power and in your name and by your holy, humble spirit, humility in our own life, in our own attitudes in our own responses. Convict us of the reasons. Make us obedient to the requirements, Lord. Help us to heed your responses. And Lord, we really want to be those who are among the humble who receive the grace of God.
because we need it so desperately in these days. I bless this class. I thank you for their attention, Lord. Uh, or wherever they're at in their circumstance, if it's a vexing circumstance, Lord, show them gently as only you can, dear Father, that, that, that this is not punitive. And we invite you, Lord, please, if, if you're after something for yourself, keep testing us to show us what is in our hearts that you might teach us what is in yours. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all three humble in one. Amen. Amen.